The aim of this lecture is to introduce and engage with the idea of colonial global economy in two closely related senses. Firstly, this term reminds us that to understand the inequalities and extractive processes that shape the contemporary global economy, we need to bear in mind that there was never a clean break or rupture between the pre-colonial period and the putatively post-colonial present. The global economy can be understood as a colonial global economy, shaped not only by the legacies of our colonial past, but by colonially instituted arrangements, relationships and imaginaries which persist in the present. Secondly, we need to ask what it is that allows the contemporary global economy to be studied in a way that either overlooks or silences the significant body of scholarship which shows that industrial capitalism in Europe, in the UK in particular, would have been unaffordable without slavery, or that transfers of wealth from the colonies to colonial powers continue to shape contemporary inequalities. As Suvarata Bobby Banerjee puts it, Apart from extraction of resources from conquered territories, colonialism also involved complex relationships between the colonizer and colonized, including a reconfiguration of the latter's economies. And these complex relationships endure today. The idea that we are enmeshed in a colonial global economy should be at the forefront of our minds when confronting the hostile treatment of adults and children with no recourse to public funds, who have migrated to the UK from former British colonies where livelihood opportunities are shaped by past and present colonial entanglements. Likewise, as Vincent Germond and Dongo Sambasilla show, when migrant remittances are encouraged as a way to compensate for a lack of opportunity in former French colonies in West Africa, still subject to colonial monetary arrangements, but those same migrants are denigrated and treated with hostility in France, the colonial global economy is at play. And these colonial entanglements can come into view more clearly when we examine particular mechanisms for extraction of resources from colonies and their transfer to colonial powers. One example that has received a great deal of media coverage in recent years comes from Utsa Patnaik's revitalization of work on the drain of wealth from India under British rule. Through what was in effect an elaborate accounting trick or fiscal sleight of hand, Indian exports were effectively bought with Indian producers' own tax contributions that had been siphoned off to London. Those who would purchase goods from India had to deposit currency or gold in London in exchange for these diverted rupees, and so increased exports did not result in increased earnings for India. For a less widely discussed example, we can turn to the Fijian economist Wadan Nasi. Nasi has detailed the efforts to which the British Treasury went to deliberately mislead colonies about the degree to which their currency reserves were being used to bolster British public finances in the decade following World War II. Colonies were obliged to hold their large currency reserves in London. The agents managing these reserves were pressured to invest them in UK government securities rather than in colonial development. Meanwhile, colonies were obliged to adopt austere economic policies or finance their development through taxes which were levied along racialized lines. White settlers frequently paid little to no tax on their land and income. It's difficult to deny that the forced investment of these reserves in British government and municipal securities contributed to the establishment of the British welfare state and also the structural underdevelopment of Britain's colonies. As a result of this arrangement, upon Ghana's independence, figures on the quantity of Ghana's reserves were not available to the finance minister. Upon traveling to London, independence leader Kwame Nkrumah found Ghanaian reserves both diminished due to unsound investment and tied up in long-term UK government securities with maturation dates well into the 1970s. Even the formal end of colonization did not bring an end to this mechanism, whereby colonial public finances were diverted to bolster British public finances in a period frequently celebrated as the high point of welfare state provision. 
So we're now going to look at the persistence of colonial institutions and operations in the global economy in a little more detail, focusing specifically on international investment law and the criticisms it has received from post-colonial and third world international lawyers. With this example, we will start in the present and the measures that many states have or may wish to enact in response to COVID-19. The networks of bilateral investment treaties and regional trade agreements that structure relations between investors from one country and the governments of the countries in which they invest provide protections for investors against various forms of so-called discrimination as well as expropriation or nationalization. And a key component of this protection is the right to initiate arbitration with the government under one of a set of arbitral rules, usually those of the World Bank's exit. As Muthukumaraswamy Sonaraja and Jomo Kwame Sundaram have both noted recently, with unprecedented government intervention in economies around the world, providing contracts to produce ventilators or PPE to some companies and not others, or commandeering healthcare facilities, the websites of various law firms have been quick to offer services in anticipation of arbitration claims. In many cases, government responses to COVID-19 may have violated the protections that investment treaties give to foreign investors. Some newer treaties make sustainable development their goal, but as Sonaraja shows, older treaties do not allow for regulatory space in response to crises like COVID-19. Further, the ingrained tendency of arbitrators, whose rulings cannot usually be subject to appeal, is often to find against the state and make an award to companies or investors who have lost out on expected earnings as a result of government intervention in response to a crisis. So why treat international investment law, these treaty networks and the practice of arbitration as a matter of colonial global economy? Well, the rules that maintain international investment law were, as Sonaraja notes, fashioned during the age of formal empire and private interests predominantly situated in the global north continue to assert their dominance through the system of rules. As a consequence, the policy space available to former colonies is often challenged, and these challenges can have consequences for attempts to address contemporary inequalities and historical racial injustice. Hence, the South African Department of Trade and Industry's decision to review and cancel 23 of its investment treaties in 2012, replacing them with a domestically crafted legislation in response to a fear that public interest regulation, including, for example, black economic empowerment agendas designed to redress the inequalities resulting from apartheid, might be seen as violating treaty requirements. Treaties frequently require the fair and equitable treatment of foreign investors who cannot be treated differently to citizens of the country in which they're investing. More recently, a consortium of miners operating in the Democratic Republic of Congo threatened arbitration after a new mining code introduced in 2018 increased tax and royalty rates on strategic minerals like cobalt. And it's of course worth noting that this is merely a mirror image of the designation by the EU and many others of cobalt as a critical mineral, where the supply chain security for cobalt is essential to electric vehicle manufacture and so to decarbonizing transport infrastructure and meeting the Paris climate targets. But why should the exercise of sovereignty by formerly colonized resource exporting countries be registered merely as supply chain risk and also as a threat to European energy futures. Why might this justify investors taking or threatening legal action against the governments of those countries? Well, as some of those economic historians who also act as cheerleaders for British empire have pointed out, during the period of formal empire, the only uncertainty that investors in the colonies had to face was the expected duration of British rule. From the 1960s and gaining pace in the 1970s, 
anxieties about post-independence expressions of sovereignty that might impact on resource extraction and profit repatriation resulted in risk analysts and international lawyers doubling down on what Anthony Angi has identified as a long-standing commitment to the idea that non-European or post-colonial sovereignty is and always will be contingent on the foreigner's right to trade. We saw in the previous section that even in measures of how critical raw materials are to the energy transition, we can find traces of the colonial global economy at the level of mechanisms governing the extraction of resources and wealth, as well as in terms of the imaginaries which justify the legal regimes bolstering such forms of extraction. But there are numerous other domains in which an implicit acknowledgement of colonial durability goes along with the denial of the need to address and redress colonial extraction in the contemporary global economy. Perhaps the most widely discussed of the economic indices that covers the global south, the World Bank's doing business rankings not only provide a yardstick against which developing countries are supposed to measure their policy success in terms of facilitating the ease of doing business, but these rankings also feed into countless other indices and measures of the global economy which circulate among policymakers, business analysts and the financial media. When the rankings were developed in the early 2000s, they were heavily influenced by then emerging work on what came to be called the legal origins theory. The law and economics scholars, based largely in the US, who developed the legal origins theory, explicitly start from a concern with the legal protection of outside investors. They have argued there is a broad distinction between countries colonized by common law countries, like England, and countries colonized by civil law countries, like France with stronger legal investor protection and better contract enforcement and greater security of property rights in common law jurisdictions, apparently. Now, it is no wonder that critical scholars and campaigners frequently call for the wrapping up of the doing business report, given that a country ranks better when its social security contributions are low, that is when employees have less of social protection benefits for their families and retire with low pensions. But, Underlying the doing business rankings, there's also a curious, if not unfamiliar, double movement, whereby the colonial past is invoked to explain the spread of certain legal institutions, while continuations of colonial patterns of extraction and exploitation are rendered invisible. The overarching concern with contract protection and the protection of outside investors that the doing business rankings measure partakes in the same anxieties that emerged when the certainty of empire came to an end the same anxieties which investors seek to allay through a system of international investment law that, as both Anthony Angi and Muthukramaswamy Sonaraja put it, poses a distinction between civilised sovereign states of the global north and uncivilised former colonies whose sovereignty is conditional on the economic interests of primarily northern corporations. So staying with these concerns about contract protection for a moment, it's worth returning to the impact of COVID-19 in the colonial global economy. And despite the anxiety about contract protection for outside investors in countries of the global south that saturates indices like the doing business rankings, when the COVID-19 crisis hit, apparel companies began to cancel orders from garment factories in Bangladesh, not only finished orders, but those in pr production at the time. And buyers invoked force majeure clauses as a reason not to pay, even though, as Mark Anna puts it, According to the Vienna Convention for International Commercial Contracts, force majeure claims should apply to the party with the most relevant contractual obligation, which in this case would be the Bangladeshi factories producing items, not the buyers that have agreed to pay for them. The result of these cancellations in response to COVID-19 was wages going unpaid, 
workers struggling to afford food and basic supplies, and a return to work for many far earlier than would be safe. Bangladeshi economist Anu Muhammad has shown that the majority of revenue captured from the Bangladeshi garment sector ends up not only in the coffers of northern domiciled garment corporations, Primark, for example, who did cancel orders in progress in response to COVID-19, posted operating profits of over $1 billion in 2019, and their shareholders, but also this value is captured as public funds in the global north via VAT and other charges, which often far outstrip the value that goes that accrues to garment workers via the wages paid for their work. So the mechanisms may have altered, but we can still detect in the colonial global economy a drain of wealth from the, from the subcontinent to countries of the north, including the UK. So we have seen that even where policymakers and economists implicitly or explicitly recognize that past colonial encounters have given shape to the contemporary global economy, the consequences of historical extraction and exploitation for contemporary inequalities are not given consideration, and the durability of colonial arrangements in the present is treated as a non-issue. Yet there's another issue that's worthy of our attention. Recent scholarship which appears to engage with classic works on the relationship between colonialism, slavery and the global economy often seems to misrepresent this work deeply. H. Ruben Neptune has recently reviewed a number of high-profile historical works written by prestigious academics receiving a certain amount of popular appeal and media coverage, which claim to draw an Eric Williams scholarship, but reaffirm the inherited fiction that Williams proposed a historical contradiction between slavery and the development of capitalism. Eric Williams, the first Prime Minister of Trinidad and Tobago and a one-time student of C.L.R. James, wrote Capitalism in Slavery in 1944 in which he argued that the mass of capital accumulated in the West Indies to the slave trade and plantation system enabled industrial expansion in England, and that slavery came to an end not for any humanistic reasons, but because it became increasingly possible to amass capital internally within industrialized Britain. Slavery ended or persisted when and where it made economic sense to do so. The assumption that capitalist development entails, entails a form of progress opposed to slavery, or that participation in labour markets provides capitalist freedoms entirely opposed to slavery, as the development economist Demotra Sen would have it, is entirely at odds to Williams' thesis, as Neptune shows. Williams was clear that slavery was part of capitalism, part of modernity, and that there is no narrative of history which can situate modern capitalist progress on this side of a historical rupture that consigns slavery to a different era. And, Neptune argues, contemporary North Atlantic historians misuse and misread Williams precisely because the critique of European civilization, which he wrote 75 years ago, is one that North Atlantic scholars still grope towards. Williams could thereby pose a threat to the notion that the North represent, represents the avant-garde when it comes to scholarship on colonialism, slavery and capitalism. And this kind of threat is posed more widely by a willingness to apprehend the global economy as the colonial global economy. And yet by doing so, we can start to pick away at the notion that measures of raw material criticality simply measure supply chain risk posed to decarbonizing economies in the global north. Instead, we can see that these measures rest on and naturalize the assumption that public interest regulation and developmental efforts made by resource exporting or exploited states are aberrations that ought to be subject to arbitration claims. We can also ask why measures used by policymakers and investors, like the doing business rankings, reward contract protection for outside investors, but workers in the global south are still exposed to the cancellation of contracts and wages in the midst of a pandemic. 
We live in a world where inequalities are structured by past patterns of colonial extraction and racialized exploitation, and where the imaginaries and institutions which undergirded that extraction endure, albeit in modified forms. To study colonial global economy is not to say that we know what the global economy looks like, it looks exactly like the colonial past. For instance, as Ana Garcia shows, the investment treaties that BRICS countries, some of whom were once considered part of the global south, have entered into with other African nations are very similar in form to those arranged between former colonizers and former colonies. But the template was laid down by the colonial relation. And ultimately, understanding the colonial global economy does require that we recognize there never was a clean break, a rupture or whole, wholesale consignment of colonial relations to the past.